This podcast contains adult themes and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. A commercial-free version of this podcast is available on Patreon for $1 per month. Patreon.com forward slash Beyond Contempt Podcast. I'm Renee, and this is Beyond Contempt True Crime. Just a warning on this one, because the victim was a young child. I rarely like to cover cases involving children, because it's just too difficult. But this case is important, as it was one of the first cases in the United States that used mitochondrial DNA testing to convict the defendant. A quick primer on DNA testing. Nuclear DNA uses material from the cell's nucleus, whereas mitochondrial DNA is found in hair, bones, and teeth. Mitochondrial DNA is less prone to degradation. The amount of mitochondria is more prolific than nuclear DNA, and there are thousands of copies in each cell versus one copy in nuclear DNA. Also know that there's a prolific cast of characters in this episode. Some people have the same or similar first names. I tried to do my best to really reiterate who everyone was when I wrote this episode, but you probably need to pay a little extra attention in the beginning to keep everyone straight. You're listening to episode 78, Lindsey Green. Sylvia Dye had been staying with her friend Sheila King and Sheila's two young sons at 414 Stringer Street in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Sylvia and her ex-partner Jimmy Green shared custody of their four-year-old daughter, Lindsay. Lindsay had stayed with her father during the week of September 26, 1994, On Friday, September 30th, 1994, Lindsay had been dropped off with her mother, Sylvia. It was 6 p.m. that night, and Sylvia wanted to go out with her boyfriend. She called her ex, Jimmy, and asked him if he could take Lindsay back for the evening. He agreed to pick up their daughter, but wouldn't be over till later. Sylvia asked Sheila King if she could watch Lindsay until Jimmy arrived, and Sheila said she would. Earlier that day, a man named Paul Ware stopped by to help Sheila's father, Carl, repair a door since Carl actually owned the 414 Stringer Street home. After Sylvia's boyfriend, Danny, arrived, all the adults had a few drinks, and around 8 p.m., Paul Ware, Sylvia, and her boyfriend, Danny, went to a bar called Ziggy's, which was only a five-minute walk. A while later, Sheila King called down to Ziggy's, asking for Sylvia. When all the kids were playing, one of her boys bumped heads with Lindsay and gave her a bloody nose. She wanted her mom, so Sheila asked Sylvia to come back to the house. Between 9.30 and 10 p.m., Sheila King's sister Carla and her boyfriend Paul Crum stopped over. Sheila had given Paul money for some marijuana, and he was dropping it off. Paul Crum was also looking for Paul Ware, since he was looking to buy weed as well. Paul Crum walked over to Ziggy's, but Paul Ware wasn't there. He then walked over to another bar called the Dude Drop In Again, where he found Paul Ware and delivered the drugs. After the exchange, Paul Ware remained drinking at the bar, while Paul Crum returned to the 414 Stringer Street house. 
Sheila King wanted to go out and asked Paul Crum if he could babysit the kids. She gave him ten bucks and a pack of cigarettes, and they called it a deal. Sheila King expected Sylvia and Danny to be home soon anyway. At 10.30 p.m., Sylvia and Danny left Ziggy's bar and stopped back at the house. When they looked through the screen door, they could see all the kids were playing, so they decided they didn't need to stop in and check Lindsay's bloody nose. Sylvia and Danny got into their car and drove to another bar. Sheila King, her sister Carla, and her father Carl left the house and walked to Ziggy's around 10.45 p.m. They were hoping to catch Sylvia and Danny, not realizing that they already left for another bar. The trio went to the liquor store next door to Ziggy's, then walked to the Dewdrop Inn again. They ran into Paul Ware at the bar. He was drinking, and Sheila thought he looked high. Sheila King told Paul Ware that he could stay over at her house. He had lived at the 414 Stringer Street house about a month prior, but she asked him to move out. Paul Ware would drink too much and even broke the window on her door. When he stayed over at Sheila's, he usually slept on the couch or hit the floor. Sheila left the bar with her friends and did not return home until 6.30 or 7 the next morning. The night wore on and Paul Crum was watching movies while babysitting the kids. The kids were falling asleep as it was getting late. Between 1.30 and 2 a.m., a very drunk Paul Ware showed up at the house. Paul Crum put the kids to bed. He wrapped Lindsay in a comforter and placed her on one of the twin beds in the bedroom that she shared with her mom. Her mother, Sylvia, typically slept in the other twin bed. Paul Crum said Paul Ware was wobbling all around and was extremely drunk. Paul Ware went to the kitchen and made himself a sandwich, but promptly threw it up. He made a phone call, then went to the bathroom. Paul Crum took his attention off Paul Ware and started watching the movie again. Paul Ware came out of the bathroom and said he was going to sleep. He walked into the bedroom where Lindsay was sleeping. Paul Crum assumed Paul Ware was going to pass out on the empty twin bed. Sylvia and Danny still had not returned home. Around 1.30 a.m., they left the bar and went to the Waffle House to get some food. They left the Waffle House around 2.20 a.m. and headed back to 414 Stringer Street. When Danny and Sylvia arrived, they talked with Paul Crum for about 15 or 20 minutes. Then Sylvia asked how her daughter Lindsay was doing. Paul Crum said she was sleeping and that Paul Ware had passed out in the other twin bed. Sylvia tried to open the bedroom door, but it was locked. She started banging on the door, but no one responded. Sylvia retrieved a knife from the kitchen and tried to open the door. Paul Crum helped her and unlocked the door with the kitchen knife. In the bedroom, the twin beds were empty. Sylvia then walked across the bedroom and opened the utility door to the laundry room. That was where she found her four-year-old daughter, Lindsay, and Paul Ware, both without clothes on. Ware was on the ground, lying face up. Lindsay was next to him, face down, with her head next to Ware's feet. Lindsay's lips were blue, and her body was cool to the touch. Sylvia repeatedly kicked Ware, but he did not move or wake up. 
Sylvia's boyfriend Danny heard the commotion in the bedroom and rushed over to the utility closet. He picked up Lindsay and ran outside. Danny and Sylvia got into their car and rushed to the emergency room. Sylvia attempted to perform CPR on her four-year-old daughter all the way to the hospital. Paul Crum was beside himself and didn't know what to do, so he called his girlfriend Carla. He left the house and drove to Carla's place. Paul Crum told her to call 911 because Paul Ware had killed Lindsey Green. Paul got back in his car to drive around to find Sylvia and Danny. He incorrectly thought that they left with Lindsay on foot, so after driving around for a while and not finding them, he went back to the 414 Stringer Street house. Sheila King's father, Carl, had returned home, and Paul Ware was up and awake. Ware was in a bit of a stupor, unsure of what was going on. Paul Crum went back outside the house and waited for the police to arrive. At 3.10 a.m. in the hospital, it wasn't looking good. The emergency room physician couldn't find Lindsay's vital signs. There was no heart rate or pulse, and the four-year-old was blue from a lack of oxygen. So they intubated Lindsay and tried to resuscitate the young girl, but were unsuccessful. And she was pronounced dead at 3.25 a.m. Two Chattanooga police officers arrived in the early morning hours of October 1, 1994, to the Stringer Street house. Officer Croquette noticed that the man he would later come to know as Paul Crum was shaking uncontrollably. Crum either asked if the baby was dead or said the baby was dead. Later in court, the officers couldn't recall which it was. Paul Crum told them that the baby was at the hospital and they should go inside the house to look for Paul Ware, who harmed the baby. Crum thought Ware might have run to the back of the house, but he wasn't sure. Officers entered the home and found Ware lying in a pile of clothes. He was shirtless with pants on. Officers cuffed the drunk man, who didn't know what was going on, and took him down to the booking station. When Officer Baker drove him to be booked, Ware displayed a range of behaviors, from being quiet and passive to being a belligerent drunk. At the police station, Ware sat in a chair one minute and lunged at Officer Baker the next. Baker had to grab the drunk man and force him back to his seat. When officers tested Paul Ware's blood alcohol level at 1.30 p.m., it registered 0.04%. It had been over 10 hours since Sylvia and Danny rushed Lindsay to the hospital, and experts estimated his blood alcohol would have been 0.2 or 0.21%. They charged Paul Ware with murder and multiple counts of child rape. 27-year-old Paul Ware's trial started in August 1996. In the prosecution's opinion, this was a cut-and-dry death penalty case, and they pushed for it. Not all the evidence fit perfectly into the state's theory of the case, but they had plenty of evidence on their side. On the twin bed where Lindsay slept, there was what looked like a urine stain. A Chattanooga police officer had videotaped the crime scene and showed the video of the stain to the jury. Sylvia and Danny had sex on that bed in the past, and they could have been responsible for the stain on the sheets. The testing by the FBI did not confirm that Paul Ware had contributed to the stains on the bedsheets. 
They couldn't confirm that it was urine, and they were never able to match the mystery substance to a person. When Sylvia and Paul Crum broke into the bedroom, he shook all the covers off the bed looking for Lindsay. The little girl's clothes fell onto the floor. There was a top, a pair of shorts, and a pair of underwear that were stuck inside the shorts. Later on, investigators found Paul Ware's wallet and a pair of beige men's pants between the bed and the dresser. A pair of men's red underwear was found at the foot of the bed, but investigators could never confirm who the garment belonged to. Danny Gladys and Paul Crum said the underwear didn't belong to them. Sheila King often washed Paul Ware's clothes when he had briefly lived there and said that the underwear might be his. However, she had never seen that pair when she did his laundry. Paul Crum testified that Paul Ware changed his pants from what he wore earlier that evening to when he was arrested. Crum noticed that Ware also had a few drops of blood on his face. Officer Baker had been one of the police officers who arrested Paul Ware on October 1, 1994. He remembered the defendant had on a white shirt, and there were a few red spots that looked like blood. His pants were dark, and Ware was extremely drunk and disheveled. The FBI tested the bloodstains on Ware's shirt, but there wasn't enough DNA, or the DNA was too degraded to determine who the blood belonged to. When Paul Crum was watching TV, after Paul Ware had passed out in the bedroom. He thought he heard two little bumps, but had not given it much of his attention. When Paul Crum was cross-examined by the defense, he admitted that the two bumps could have been car door shutting since Danny and Sylvia arrived home around that time. The emergency room physician gave her testimony about checking for signs of sexual abuse on the deceased girl. Both Lindsay's rectum and vagina were torn, and it was one of the worst things the doctor had ever seen. There was bruising in the child's upper thighs, labia, and rectum. There wasn't a large amount of external blood, but there were indications of internal bleeding. The doctor said her findings were consistent with child rape, specifically with an adult male's penis. The physician did not perform a complete exam, as she thought it was better to leave the child's body undisturbed for the medical examiner. Dr. Frank King was the medical examiner, and he presented his findings at trial. The cause of Lindsay Green's death was mechanical asphyxia. The little girl could not breathe because of a mechanical interference in normal breathing. She had a contusion on the small of her back, which was consistent with her body being pressed against a board or a flat surface, meaning that her back was pressed up against something with pressure applied to her 30-pound frame. During the autopsy, Dr. Frank King found hairs on and inside of her body. There was a reddish hair on the child's lip. A dark brown body hair was touching both the mucosa of the rectum and the skin on the anus. For a hair to stick to this area, it would take both pressure and direct contact. There was also a reddish pubic hair in the victim's pharynx. This was an unusual finding because the doctor explained that a person who was still alive and breathing normally could not tolerate a hair in this location, as it would trigger a coughing reflex. Paul Ware had red or auburn hair. Dr. King explained that rigor mortis showed up first in the jaw, in the small muscles of the extremities. Considering the victim was small and wasn't wearing clothes, 
He estimated that she had been dead approximately one to two hours at most when she was found. Rigor mortis takes between two and four hours to develop in the jaw. Dr. King thought the injuries had been inflicted on Lindsay prior to her death, but agreed that given her injuries, there should have been more blood found externally. There were petechial hemorrhages inside the victim's mouth, which he stated could have been consistent with either asphyxia or low oxygen or aggressive resuscitation. But the doctor concluded that the overall pattern with the other injuries present pointed to mechanical asphyxia. The doctor could not say that there was oral penetration, since they found no seminal fluid in or around the child's body. Dr. King stated that the injuries could have been caused by the insertion of any blunt object and testified that he could not say with certainty that an adult male penis penetrated the child, although he believed that the child had been brutally raped. At the crime scene, a red plastic soda bottle was found in the bathroom sink. It was essentially the same size and diameter as the penis of an adult male. Dr. Cleland Blake testified for the defense. He said that the first change seen after death is liver mortis, or lividity. When a body is laying on its back, the blood settles down towards the back, and it appears more purple or pink. The longer the time, the more intense the color of purple seen. If the body faces down, then the purple appears more on the stomach side of the body. Liver mortis could be noticeable around 1.5 to 2 hours, but might take as long as two and a half hours. This doctor estimated that the child had been dead for over three hours, especially if they had perceived her skin as cool. He said that any handling of the child would delay rigor mortis, like when Sylvia performed CPR on Lindsay all the way to the ER. This doctor disagreed with the medical examiner and said that Lindsay could have been deceased prior to her injuries, and this was demonstrated with the lack of external blood found on the child. Do you need an easy way to eat well and save money? Cut back on expensive takeout and delivery and get started with HelloFresh. You'll love how fast, easy, and affordable it is to whip up a restaurant-quality meal right in your own kitchen. You can customize select meals by swapping proteins or sides and even adding protein to a veggie dish. And now you can even upgrade for organic chicken or organic ground beef. I'm not the best or most interesting cook. I appreciate HelloFresh because they always have some sauce or twist on a dish that I can never come up with myself. Go to HelloFresh.com beyondpod50 and use code beyondpod50 for 50% off. Plus your first box ships free. One more time. That's HelloFresh.com beyondpod50. And use code BEYONDPOD50 for 50% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Special Agent Chris Hopkins of the FBI Hair and Fibers Unit testified and had identified the hair which was found in the victim's pharynx as a red Caucasian pubic hair, which had been naturally shed. Ten of these hairs were taken from the sheet on the bed where Paul Crum had placed Lindsay. The FBI analyst said pubic hairs are naturally shed when a person showers or takes their underwear on and off. The finding of pubic hairs on the bed sheets was significant evidence. When hairs fall off of a person, they will not remain on the bed sheets for very long when someone is using that bed regularly. 
If there was no activity in the bed, then the hairs would remain on the sheets. The agent did not expect to find so many pubic hairs from a bed that had just been slept on. The FBI analysis concluded that the hairs on the bed and the hairs found in the victim's pharynx were consistent with the mitochondrial DNA of Paul Ware. Mitochondrial DNA analysis was a newer method of DNA testing and had been first implemented in the FBI laboratory in June 1996, just a few months prior to the trial. The FBI analyst said that the red hair found on Lindsay's lip was a chest hair, and he thought the hair that was found on her anus was a body hair. At that stage of knowledge about mitochondrial DNA testing, they thought that only pubic and head hairs were suitable for making DNA comparisons, because body hairs could look like other people's hair. During the trial, the defense filed an affidavit by Dr. William M. Shields, a geneticist, who stated that the protocol and publications listed in that protocol, used by the FBI for mitochondrial DNA testing, were not sufficiently validated and therefore wasn't scientifically reliable. There was an insufficient sample size of the FBI's database to consider the mitochondrial DNA method valid. FBI Special Agent Keith Howland testified he discovered blood in the laundry room. He tested the DNA profile, but could not draw any conclusions. Additional known standards were later sent to the lab, and another analyst performed the testing. There was a match for Carl Sanders, who was Sheila King's father. They did not elaborate on this finding during the trial. But the house on 414 Stringer Street was very unclean. There were many items all over the floors, dirty dishes throughout the house, and dirty clothes on the laundry room floor. They had not vacuumed the floor in a long time. This was a plausible explanation for Carl's blood in the laundry room. The defense only had one tactic, and that was to shift all the blame to Paul Crum. They said their client, Paul Ware, was too drunk to commit the crime. The defense team's narrative was that Crum raped the girl in the backyard and cleaned himself up. He rubbed pubic hairs off of Paul Ware onto the bedsheets, then dragged Ware into the laundry room with the young girl. During trial, Paul Crum admitted he had been sexually, mentally, and physically abused by his father when he was a child. Paul Crum told a friend that he wanted to get help because he didn't want to have the feeling or even think about abusing his kids. After the crime, he got help from a psychiatrist and checked into a treatment facility for a brief stay. Paul Crum had two kids with his girlfriend, Carla. Carla and the kids lived with her dad, while Crum lived out of his car or couch surfed at friends and family's houses. He also had another daughter who lived with her mom. The defense called Wilma Pack to the stand. She rented a room to Paul Crum at one time. Wilma said Paul Crum had drawn skulls and skeletons and showed them to her 11-year-old son. She also said that he even once showed her son a picture of Disney characters having sex. Paul Crum admitted to these things, but added a piece of context that the defense had not provided. He did not mean to show her son a picture of cartoons having sex. The picture was incidentally at the bottom of a page in a tattoo magazine that he was showing the 11-year-old boy. Crum admitted to smoking weed with the 11-year-old boy, but only did so because his parents gave him permission. Paul Ware and David Ware were step-siblings who shared the same father, 
David Ware testified that Paul Crum visited their home on October 1, 1994, after the crime had been committed. David and his wife thought Paul Crum was fidgety, was walking funny with stiff legs, and was protective of his private parts. He had been adjusting his pants a lot, as if he perhaps had some crotch irritation. David Ware and Sheila King were half-siblings, as they shared the same mother. At trial, Sheila King called the defendant, Paul Ware, her stepbrother, but this was not exactly true, since they weren't technically related by blood or marriage. But this was the roundabout, pseudo-familial connection that brought Paul Ware to Sheila King's household and into Lindsey Green's brief life. Lindsay's mother, Sylvia, testified and said on the night her daughter was killed, Paul Crum acted like his normal, easygoing, mellow self. He was watching TV and smoking a joint. A Hamilton County jury convicted Paul Ware of murder and two counts of child rape. He was sentenced to life without parole for the murder and was given 25-year sentences for the child rape convictions, which were to be served concurrently. In 1999, Paul Ware appealed his case. There were eight issues that the defense brought up. The evidence presented at trial did not support his convictions. The state committed a Brady violation. The mitochondrial DNA analysis was not properly admitted into evidence. The trial court erred by excluding evidence showing Paul Crum was a satanic worshiper. The trial judge showed his bias against the defendant in the jury's presence. There was a sufficient accumulation of errors requiring a new trial. Consecutive sentences were not properly imposed, and the trial court erred by failing to declare a mistrial because of testimony from a newly discovered witness. The defense argued that Paul Crum had the most opportunity to commit these crimes because he was with Lindsay from 10.45 p.m. until her mother found her shortly before 3 a.m. This was supported by Dr. Cleland Blake regarding the time of death of the victim, the failure of the investigators to test the stain on the master bed, the failure of investigators to examine Carl Sanders and Paul Crum for evidence immediately after the crime, the lack of evidence on the defendant's body, the brown hair found inside the victim's rectum, and Paul Crum's admission that he feared he would sexually abuse his own children. The court disagreed with this assertion, mostly because they found the defendant and the victim nude in a locked room. The defense felt that the state committed a Brady violation and prior to the trial did not disclose the color and description of the hair found in the victim's anus. And the fact Lindsay's father, Jimmy Green, had called over to the 414 Stringer Street house between 9 and 10 p.m. on the night of the murder and no one picked up the phone. The court disagreed with the Brady violation as the defense received information that a hair had been recovered from the victim's anal area prior to the trial. They listed this in the evidence inventory, and the defense received a copy of the test results from the FBI, which showed that they did not test the hair because it was a body hair. Jimmy Green never testified at trial because he couldn't say with certainty when he placed the calls to 414 Stringer Street. The defense argued that the use of mitochondrial DNA resulted in an unfair trial. Because no admissibility hearing was granted, the defense couldn't argue that this analysis was not sufficiently scientifically reliable enough to be used in court. By 1997, 
The FBI protocol for mitochondrial DNA testing had changed since the time of Paul Ware's trial. Initially, mitochondrial DNA analysis was limited to head and pubic hairs, but in 1997 had expanded to body hairs as scientists learned more about this method. It was possible that the victim picked up hairs from a dirty laundry room floor because the house was unkempt. However, the pubic hair found in her pharynx was not a casual finding. Even though Dr. Shields believed that the sample sizes in the FBI database were inadequate, which made mitochondrial DNA analysis unreliable, the FBI had a different opinion. The FBI expert testified that mitochondrial DNA was extensively studied, well understood, and characterized. The hair from the bedsheet, the hair in the victim's throat, and Paul Ware's saliva all shared a common sequence. So the court did not consider the mitochondrial results to be unfair to the defendant. The next issue was Paul Crum and the admissibility of his purported worshipping of Satan. Paul Crum drew and painted objects like skulls, skeletons, grim reapers, a dagger through a rose into a heart, a severed arm dripping with blood, with a rose falling from the fingers of the hand, a burning cross, and demons. Paul Crum said his pictures were not satanic. A distant relative by marriage testified that Paul Crum once told her he had sacrificed a dog because voices told him to do it. When she and her husband were visiting Crum's sister one evening, the group watched a video about devil worship. Paul Crum walked past the room where they were watching the video and said to his sister, Don't be showing that to people and discussing me. She also testified that on five or six different occasions, she had her crumb refer to a picture of Jesus as dog, or God spelled backwards. The distant relative said, Crumb told her, when Paul Ware vomited on the night of the crime, it was like a cool breeze, and it was like a demon had left his body and entered Ware's body, because when he started puking, it was like somebody was in there, throwing it out his mouth. Paul Crum's sister once told her that when his youngest child was born with spinal meningitis, that Crum said he gave Satan his soul so his kid wouldn't die. He also gave his kid's soul to Satan, and they were supposed to do an exorcism on him. Crum didn't want it done, because he was afraid that Satan would take his child. Amy Cook was a friend of Sheila King and Carla Sanders. She said Paul Crum approached her during the summer of 1994 about making a leather bracelet for him. She testified that he told her that he had a ring and ankle bracelet, both with the number six. He wanted a black bracelet, also bearing the number six, to complete the triad. Amy Cook assumed it was the mark of the beast, 666. She stated, Crum told her that he listens to the devil, and the devil comes and tells him what to do. He went by the laws of Lucifer. The defense wanted this evidence to be allowed in court because it supported their theory that Paul Crum was guilty of the crime, and this affected his credibility. But the defense already brought certain information about Crum's interest in Satan to the jury. They did not convince the court that additional evidence about Satan worship would have a substantial impact on the trial, enough to change the outcome. The next point the defense argued was the judge showed bias in the jury's presence because of a few brief comments he made. A judge has broad discretion to guide the trial, and the court felt the judge acted appropriately. 
The defense claimed there were cumulative errors at the trial, which made it unfair. When the court reviewed the entire record, they felt the defendant received a fair trial. Instead of receiving the death penalty, they gave the defendant life without parole. The defense argued that this sentencing was unfair. When the court reviewed the case, they felt that the court labeling the defendant as a dangerous offender was warranted given the crimes and the sentence was reasonable. During the trial, after the jury went to deliberation, the defense found a new witness, Donna Pickett. The defense moved to hear this additional evidence, but the court denied it. Donna was Paul Ware's aunt via marriage. She said Paul Crum and Carla Sanders visited her home on the day of the murder. Crum told Donna what happened that night. He couldn't find Lindsay, but when he went to the laundry room, Paul Ware's passed out with an erection. He didn't know what to do, so he went outside and found Carl Sanders. Carl went back into the house and picked up Lindsay. He said this baby is dead. Crum told him they had to put the baby back. Sylvia and Danny came home shortly after. Crum didn't know how to tell them about Lindsay, so they all smoked a joint. When Sylvia went to check on her daughter, that was when everything unfolded. Donna didn't offer this information sooner because her husband told her to mind her own business and said everyone in the family would hate her if she took part in the case. The court said that Donna's testimony needed to be so substantial that it resulted in a complete acquittal, but the court didn't find this information compelling. It provided a different picture of events, but it did not show that Paul Ware was any less guilty. The court did not agree with any of the defendant's arguments. Paul Ware's convictions and sentence remained intact. Paul Ware is serving out his life sentence in an undisclosed prison. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Beyond Contempt. Please visit beyondcontemptpodcast.com for the links to the sources and music used in this episode. Research, writing, editing, audio production, and sound design were performed by me, Renee. I want to thank patrons Ben J. and Sarah B. Thank you for supporting the show. If you like the show, please leave me a positive review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you so much, everyone. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.